Father, we just adore you. We adore your presence. We recognize that stillness that comes, that quietness that overtakes us in that secret place of rest. We thank you for tearing the veil so that we could see you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see you, for opening our ears to hear you, and opening our hearts to receive you. We honor you, Lord. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no place like his presence. He's a good, good father. Father, we just ask that you do whatever it is you're doing. That you just continue to minister by your spirit beyond what the words on the page or the words in my mouth can say, that by your spirit you reveal yourself so we can see your glory. We can drink of your river of living water. We can receive your approval. The title of this morning's message is Behold Your King. This morning we're going to look at Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle Matthew. The entire book of Matthew is set up in such a way as to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the King, the King of Israel. Matthew's Gospel is said to be written specifically for a Jewish audience in mind, but of course it's not just for a Jewish audience. It's also for us as students of his word. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 4, he said, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And in Hebrews 10:7 says, Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Matthew would have agreed completely with the Apostle Paul that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. And after he met Jesus, he knew that the volume of the book was always to point us to the one true and living King, Jesus Christ. Matthew quotes the Old Testament approximately 60 times in an effort to show his reader that the reason he knew Jesus was who Jesus was was because of what had been written. He is also known for using the verbiage as was spoken through the prophets. Again, Matthew knew his word. He learned to see in it the Christ. He learned to see in it the true nature of God. It was specifically because of all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies that the Jews were looking for their Messiah to appear at that particular time in history. This morning we're going to look at one particular prophecy. It's found in Daniel. Now Matthew doesn't quote this one, but this was very well known to the Jewish nation. And it helps us understand why the Jews were looking for their Messiah at that particular time. In Daniel chapter 9, God is answering a prayer. God answers prayer. The prophet Daniel had asked God a question. He said, why is it taking so long for your promise 
to come to pass. You ever asked that one? <laughs> Why is it taking so long, God? You said it would be 70 years. You said we're going to come back to our land. You said we're going to rebuild the temple. Tick, tick, tick. Time is passing. What's taking so long? Chapter 9 begins with Daniel telling God that he's been reading the book of Jeremiah. And according to Jeremiah, the people are to return and rebuild their temple in 70 years. And so he's been counting years. You see, he went to the Word and said, this is what God said. He said 70 years. How long has it been? Well, the Jews came back in waves. There was three different times they left Babylon in waves. And so he's thinking, hello, <laughs> aren't you supposed to be making this progress a little quicker, a little faster here, Lord? He wants to know what's going on. So God answers him with a whole lot more information than he actually asked for. He tells them when the temple will be rebuilt. And then he tells Daniel when the Messiah, the king of Israel, will come. And then he tells him when the temple will be destroyed. He didn't ask for all of that information. <laughs> God will always give you more than you ask for. He's a good, good God. In Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 24, it says this. Seventy weeks of years, in other words, 490 years, have been decreed for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem. The most important thing that is going to be accomplished is this. He says, you want to know about what's happening to the temple and what's happening to Jerusalem? He says, but I want you to know what's on my heart. You share your heart with God and God will share his heart with you. He says, this is what's on my mind. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make atonement and reconciliation for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, right standing with God, to seal up or bring to completion the vision, the prophecy, and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25 then goes into breaking down this 490 years. And he says, there's a purpose. I want you to know all of this information. He says, you are to know and understand that from the issuance of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, the prince, there will be seven weeks of years, 49 years. And in 62 weeks of years, 434, it will be built again and a city, plaza, and a moat, and even in times of trouble. So now we have a total of 483 years. There was actually four different places in Scripture where it is revealed that the time has come. <laughs> King Cyrus was one of those when he said, okay, you've been in my land long enough, and I've read your prophecy how I am a tool of the Most High God, and I'm going to help you rebuild your temple, so go home and do that. <laughs> that was one of them. But there were actually four different places in Scripture, so we don't actually know when we were supposed to start counting. We just have an idea. That's why people come up with different dates. But they knew approximately 490 years from Daniel, there's a Messiah. <laughs> okay, and so he started counting. Now it says in verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks of years, the anointed one will be cut off. He'll be killed and denied his messianic kingdom. Another translation would say, but not for himself. He was killed, but not for himself. And have nothing and no one to defend him. And then the people of the other prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. 
even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So God tells him exactly what's going to happen. The second temple will be rebuilt. It will be built, because it's the second one. (laughs) And it's going to take 49 years to complete. Guess what? Check that off the list. What God says, God does. He says it's going to take 49 years for this to be rebuilt. Start counting. 49 years, and it was. That was during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. Then, 430 years after that, the Messiah, the king of Israel, is going to show up, but not the way you think. He's not coming to set up an earthly kingdom. He's coming to take care of the sin issue. He's coming to bring in an everlasting righteousness. He will be killed, but not for himself. And then another prince will come and destroy and utterly decimate Jerusalem and the temple, which also happened. Destruction of the second temple was in A.D. 70. So God tells him, I want you to start counting, because the Messiah is coming, and he's not coming the way you think he's coming. He's coming and he's going to be killed. So he says, start counting. Now this reminds me a lot of what happened with Abraham and the children of Israel in Egypt. God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years, but then they're going to rise up a great deliverer, who was Moses. Start counting the years. And they did. (laughs) About year 390, (laughs) Moses decides he's going to be a great deliverer, steps out too soon, ends up in the wilderness for 40 years thereby changing the clock. So instead of being delivered in 400 years, it was 430 years. Not because God was wrong, (laughs) because Moses stepped out in his own strength. Moses' people were counting the years. Here we have Daniel counting the years that Jeremiah says, and God says, yes, count the years. I don't want you to miss when I show up. Now, no matter how you calculate it, one of the reasons I didn't bother to do all that for you is because there are four different decrees, and it all depends on where you start counting. But guess what? You're always going to end up right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' life. Some calculate it to his birth, some calculate it to his baptism, some calculate it to his triumphal entrance to Jerusalem, and some calculate it to the day of his death. But guess what? It always shows up in Jesus' life. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jewish theologians today look at this scripture in Daniel and say, first temple built, check it off your list. Second temple destroyed, check it off your list. And then you have to explain that stuff in the middle about this anointed one. You see, they're still looking for their Messiah. What's interesting is the theologians of Matthew's day The Jewish theologians said, yes, this scripture pertains to the Christ, the King of Israel. This cannot be anybody else but him. According to the scripture, between the building of the second temple and the destruction of the second temple, that's the only time in history the Messiah, the King, can show up. Even Jesus predicted the destruction of the second temple. In Matthew 24, 1 and 2, it says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Did you think that's funny? But Jesus, look at how grand these buildings are. They couldn't possibly be destroyed. Because Jesus had just pronounced woe over Jerusalem because they were rejecting their king. And he says, it's all going to be left desolate, not one stone on top of another. And they're like, Jesus, let me help you here. (laughs) That's just a little bit impossible. (laughs) You see, they were not looking for the same kind of king 
the Father in heaven had sent. So Jesus said to them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I see to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that was completely fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem, by the Roman army. When the destruction of the second temple happened, everything related to the old covenant ceased. From that day until now, there has never been another temple. There has never been another sacrifice for sin. They have to do it according to the prescription of the old covenant. Guess what? Everything from the old covenant is gone. They have nothing for them to pull on for righteousness except the mercy of God. I love the mercy of God, but guess what? That's not how you get righteousness. Now, when you talk to Jewish theologians today about this anointed one, they start to backpedal when it comes to the Messiah. What they say is, well, it was probably a high priest because it says and to anoint the most holy place. He says this anointed one is going to put an end to transgression. He's going to make an end to sins. He's going to make reconciliation and atonement, and he's bringing in an everlasting righteousness. And he's going to anoint the most holy place. No Jewish priest would ever declare that they could do such a thing. They had to bring offerings for their own sins. There was no such thing as an offering or bringing an offering that would put an end to making offerings for sin. Only one high priest ever anointed a holy place in such a way as to put an end to all offerings. And his name was Jesus Christ, and he is our great high priest, and he entered the most holy in heaven, and he declared his blood rights right there. He alone satisfies the scripture. This is why Matthew's gospel is written the way it is. He wants us to always go back to the scripture, go back to the Old Testament, verify that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is, he's the only one that qualifies to fulfill the fact that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. During the time of Jesus, they had been counting the years. There were some who were, quote unquote, good Jews. They're counting the years. They know he's got to show up here anytime now. <laughs> so they're looking for him. But they're looking for a revolutionary. They're not looking for a savior. They specifically wanted someone who could overtake Rome and relieve them from the tyranny and the cruelty of their oppressors. Now that would be truly miraculous. So you see, they were looking for something miraculous. They were looking for somebody who could overthrow the Roman government. That would have been miraculous. <laughs> it would not be possible for a single individual to do that. So they continued to look for the Messiah, but only the way he fit their picture. And because of their picture, because they had so trained themselves to look for Jesus in only one certain way, they weren't looking for Jesus, they were looking for the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of Israel. But he didn't fit the picture they had in their mind and in their heart. They only saw this anointed one a certain way. They saw him as a conqueror, not as one who would die in their place. Jesus warns in the New Testament about following after false Christs and false messiahs. Between the time of Jesus' death and the destruction of AD 70, that's when there was a multitude of false Christs because the Jewish people were still looking for their Messiah. They had counted the years. He's got to be here. He's got to be among us here somewhere. They knew they had a deliverer coming. But because they refused Jesus because he didn't look like they thought he should look, he wasn't doing what they thought he was doing, and they didn't go back to the scripture 
to verify what this anointed one would be doing, they kept rejecting him. They continued to reject him over and over again as their king. So Matthew sets out. The whole book of Matthew is set up to prove that Jesus is the king, king of Israel. Now, originally I was going to take three different places in the book of Matthew where Jesus is declared as a king and put it all into one message. Silly me. <laughs> We're going to look at one. <laughs> um, because when you start looking at it, there's so much there. But it is a lens that we're supposed to read through when you look at the book of Matthew, that we are looking for the evidence that Jesus is the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, he starts off right away. very first verse of Matthew says this, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that doesn't sound like that's all that exciting, does it? Very sort of general, but this is actually very important. Okay, because we're looking for the Christ, the Messiah. He has certain specifications and qualifications he has to meet to actually fulfill the criteria. He has to be a son of David and a son of Abraham. Now, that in itself is kind of a strange thing, because if you are a son of Abraham, guess what? You can't get to David without going through Abraham. <laughs> so you're like, why bother mentioning both? Because it is through those two covenants those covenants are fulfilled, the covenant that God had with David and the covenant God had with Abraham, that the Messiah would be able to fulfill those covenants. He starts right from the get-go. <laughs> this is the generation of Jesus Christ. He is a son of David, and he qualifies to fulfill the Davidic covenant, and he's also a son of Abraham, and that Jesus also fulfills his promise as well. So it speaks of covenant, not just lineage. The Jews are still looking for the son of David. Guess what? You have to be able to prove your lineage in order to be qualified as a son of David. All of those records were destroyed in A.D. 70. How can they have a Messiah who doesn't have a proper lineage? They can't. <laughs> That's just it. They can't. It can't be anybody other than Jesus of Nazareth. So, right after this, verse 1, there's a whole lineage of his legal heirship to the throne of David through his earthly father, Joseph. What he's proving here is that legally, Jesus has a right to be on the throne of Israel. Now, in Luke, you have Mary's lineage. Luke proves to the Gentiles <laughs> that even through biologically, he was heir to the throne. The Jewish community doesn't recognize the female side of the lineage the same way they recognize the male side of the lineage. But that's why the scripture gives us both. He's legally heir through his earthly father, and he's legally heir through his mother. He is a son of David. You can't get around it. He qualifies to be the king. This promise that God gave to David, it shows 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. It says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in context, if you go look at that, this is where David has asked God to let him build him a house. 
I love you so much. I want to give you stuff. Let me give you a house, God. <laughs> and God says, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> but you have blood on your hands, so that kind of disqualifies you. But I'll let your son Solomon build me a house. So you still get to provide it for me. David paid for it. <laughs> but dads do. <laughs> but Solomon did not reign forever. In Jeremiah 33, 17, it says this, For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And that's a promise. It specifically says a man. How does a man sit on the throne of Israel forever? He has to have an indestructible life. <laughs> it has to be the one and only Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel. Here God promises that through David's bloodline that there will be a king of Israel who will have an everlasting kingdom. Now, an everlasting kingdom would be a real threat to every other kind of kingdom. If you're King Herod and you hear all the rumors and you know all the chief priests and scribes and everybody's counting years looking for the new king to show up and take over and he has an everlasting kingdom, would that kingdom be a threat to Herod? Absolutely. That's the point. We have to know the backstory to understand why Herod freaks out about this. <laughs> the first place we see that Jesus is declared a king is in chapter 2 of Matthew. Starting with verse 1, it says this. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. When King Herod had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why would Jerusalem be upset about the king coming? You know why King Herod might be a little scared, a little upset, but why is all Jerusalem upset? Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. This is Matthew quoting <laughs> Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. We see that not only was Herod upset, but so was all of Jerusalem. When you say all of Jerusalem, probably you should really say those with power and authority. <laughs> those chief priests and scribes who were at Herod's beck and call. <laughs> because everybody here is looking for the same thing. Herod is looking for a king. The Magi are looking for a king. The Jews are looking for a king. 
Everybody here is looking for the same thing, that only one of this group of people found him. Now, the Jews in particular, particularly those chief priests and the scribes and Herod, were looking for a rebel. They were looking for somebody who would rise up and try to take over. Herod wanted to put an end to the king. (laughs) The Jews wanted to escalate the kingdom. But the point was they both wanted control of the present kingdom. You see, they weren't looking for the king because of who he was. They weren't looking for the king because he's going to bring in this everlasting righteousness. They weren't looking for the king because of who God said he was. They were looking for the king because they wanted something from him, power and authority. Herod wanted to maintain his power and authority, and the Jews wanted to take over the power and authority. But the only one who was looking for the king because he was the king was Magi. They were the only ones looking for him because of who he was not because of what they thought he could do for them. He was the king who would bring in an everlasting righteousness, and they were the only ones interested in finding that kind of a king, the kind of a king that Daniel prophesied would come. The Magi wanted to see this king with their own eyes, and they came only to behold him, to honor him, and to worship him, not to try to use him for political purposes. Obviously, God had revealed to the Magi who this was, through these scriptures that we looked at. This was the king who alone could bring this everlasting kingdom and this everlasting righteousness. Now, tradition holds that the Magi were actually from Babylon slash Persia. They came from approximately a 1,000 miles to come and see. That's it, to come and see this king. Why? Daniel used to be one of those wise guys. Daniel was in the court of Babylon. He served many different kings, kings of Babylon and Persia. Scholars believe that Daniel left a trail, if you will, and said, keep count, guys. (laughs) Keep count, because there's coming this king, and he's got an everlasting kingdom, and one of the most amazing things he's going to do, he's going to put an end to sin and transgression, and he's going to bring in an everlasting righteousness. This is something the world has never seen. This is the kind of king worth seeing with your own eyes. This is the kind of king worth searching for. This is the kind of king the world is worth bowing down to. This is the kind of king every heart longs to see. He left them instructions, more likely than not, that because Daniel is the one making this prophecy, that the wise men from that area knew to keep count down through the ages. They were looking for the king of kings. They weren't looking for a political strategy. And they found him. I submit to you that Jesus is still a king worth waiting for. He's still a king worth searching for. He's still a king worth seeing with your own eyes, and he's still a king worth worshiping. He alone truly is the king of all kings. Now, we don't currently see Jesus in all of his splendor and glory on this earth, but that doesn't mean we can't see him. We can see him with the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our imagination, and the eyes of our understanding. Have we not seen him this morning? Did he not speak? Did he not say, you are my child? He is visible. Not the same way he was then, 
but he is so very visible and so very real. Do not underestimate the power of seeing Jesus. It is seeing Jesus that changes us. We need to see Jesus as our King, our Lord, who alone has brought us a new kind of righteousness. Not the righteousness that comes by keeping rules, but an everlasting righteousness that comes by his indwelling spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.7, it says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. Now, if the ministry of death that was inscribed on letters of stone, that's the Old Covenant, came with such glory that the people of Israel could not gaze on Moses' face because the glory was fading away from it, will not the Spirit's ministry have even more glory? The picture here is that Moses' face glowed with the visible splendor and glory of God because he had been in God's presence. But that that presence faded and the glory faded because Moses couldn't continuously behold his king. He wasn't constantly in God's presence. He could go and visit <laughs> and he could receive the glory. He could get the glory on himself. But then he would have to go back down from the mountain. And he didn't want the people losing confidence in God because the glory was fading. It was only temporary. You see, the covenant that Moses ministered was a covenant of temporary righteousness, temporary glory. And what the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, brings an everlasting righteousness and an ever-present glory. 2 Corinthians 3.9 says this, For if the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, has glory, then the ministry of justification, you know what justification is? Everlasting righteousness! <laughs> the ministry of everlasting righteousness has an overwhelming glory. Why? Because it is in his presence we see his glory. It's in his presence that we see him. When we understand that we have an everlasting righteousness, which means he never kicks us out. Not even when we blow it. He doesn't say, too bad, so sad, go to your room. If he sent us to our room, he'd go with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's an everlasting righteousness. In fact, verse 10, that which once had glory lost its glory. If only the church of Jesus Christ could get that. <laughs> the old covenant lost its glory. It was a temporary solution for an ongoing problem. Now we have a permanent solution to a problem we no longer have. It's been solved. Because the sin issue has been solved, we can live in the glory in the presence of our King. We can walk in everlasting righteousness. You know what everlasting righteousness does for us? It makes heaven available. There's nothing withheld from us. We want to walk in signs and miracles and, and, and the glory. Yes, he says. Yes and amen. Seek the gifts. Seek to operate them. Seek my face. Seek my glory. I'll just smear it all over you because you've got my everlasting righteousness. There's nothing holding you back from walking in anything and everything that he has provided and promised. How much more does that which is permanent have glory? Permanent. Everlasting righteous, that's permanent. 
Therefore, since we have this hope, this confident expectation of good, we speak very boldly, not like Moses, who kept covering his face with a veil to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of what was fading away. However, their minds were hardened, for to this day the same veil is still there when they read the Old Covenant. Only in union with the Messiah, the King, is that veil removed. Yet, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. You see, that's what happens. We're supposed to look back at the Old Covenant, but we're supposed to be looking for Jesus, not for the rules. We're not looking for a way to keep ourselves right. We're supposed to be looking back there and finding all the promises, all the pointers to Jesus. But today, so much of the body of Christ is reading the Old Testament going, this is how I should live. Instead of saying, no, I have the Holy Spirit, this is how I should live. You see, that's why we don't need the rules in the Old Testament. The rules are all outside in. Holy Spirit is inside out. That's why there's a new covenant. He's written on our hearts. He's put it on the inside of us. And it's not about reading. It's about leaning. <laughs> it's simply about leaning on this everlasting righteousness, leaning on the Holy Spirit, letting him lead us into what is right and good, because he only leads into righteousness. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, whenever somebody beholds the king, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from trying to keep all those rules. Freedom from trying to keep yourself saved. Freedom from trying to make yourself right before God. Freedom to rest in the everlasting righteousness. As all of us reflect the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. You hear that? All of us reflect the glory of the Lord. Because the veil, the religion, is broken off. Religion makes Christians ugly. <laughs> Religion is condescending and condemning. Religion doesn't reveal the glory of the King who brought an everlasting righteousness. All of us reflect the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. We are becoming more like him with ever-increasing glory by the Lord's Spirit. I like this last verse more in the King James. It says this, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We have a tendency to look into the mirror and go, why aren't you better? <laughs> we get out our little measuring sticks and go, you need to try harder. That's not how you change. That's outside in. But the more we behold the glory of our Jesus, the more that we behold the righteousness that he's bestowed on us, the more that we see him, says that's how we're changed. When we see the truth of who we are to him, that's what changes us. Not trying hard, but seeing and believing he is who he says he is. It is by beholding the truth of who our king is and what he has accomplished through the cross that we are changed. I love that. 
from one glory to another glory. One of the definitions for glory is the manifest presence. I love that one. <laughs> In other words, I can go from manifesting Jesus one way to manifesting Jesus a whole other way, to manifesting Jesus in a bigger way, to manifesting Jesus. It's all about manifesting Jesus. And he says we can grow in manifesting Jesus. Not by trying hard, not by fasting, not by memorizing scripture, but by beholding him, seeing him for who he really is. We are changed more and more to his very likeness through the constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Moses could only have the glory and the presence and the Holy Spirit on him temporarily. But we have this everlasting righteousness that gives us an everlasting presence of the Holy Spirit. This was always God's desire from the very beginning, that man would be able to see and behold the very face of God. The very face of God is seen only in the face of Jesus Christ the King. Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. Forever our king sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He alone is the exact representation of God's being. You see, we can't know our Father apart from Christ. So many people read the Old Testament and they come up with a very ugly picture of God because they don't understand what they're reading. They don't understand what God was really like, what his heart was like. It was the people who wanted rules. God wanted a kingdom of priests. God said, I want to have a relationship with you one-on-one. -on -one. And they said, no thanks, talk to Moses. You're too big and too scary. We don't want to know you that well. They always wanted what the world had. They never wanted the king for who he really was. And it is only through his son, the king of kings, that we can understand what our father is like. From the beginning, he said, I want you to have an everlasting righteousness. I want you to dwell in an everlasting kingdom. I want you to have the everlasting presence of God in your life. I want you to enjoy heaven on earth, which is Jesus. It's all available only through the king who sits at the right hand of his father. Jesus first came as a newborn baby who was laid in a manger. Among those who were the first to find him were those who first found him in the scriptures. It was because of what they saw in God's word that they could recognize and verify that he was indeed the promised king. We need to behold our king regularly in his word, in his people, and in our worship. Worship happens as a response of our heart to seeing the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished. This scripture that we looked at in Daniel 9 has been fulfilled. Through Christ and through Christ alone has God our Father put an end to sins, made atonement and reconciliation for wickedness, and brought to whosoever will believe an everlasting righteousness. 1 Timothy 1.17 says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It is only when we see our King. And I encourage you to take time to see your King, to behold his glory, not just in the Word, but yes, in the Word. Because that's how you know he always verifies what he has to say to you. He always verifies what he communicates to you. He always likes to repeat himself. So you go, is that really you, God? He goes, yes, it's really me. <laughs> he doesn't mind repeating himself. He wants you to know his voice. He wants you to behold his glory. So take time to practice seeing. Your eyes can see in the Spirit. Your heart can see Jesus today. Most Christians don't even try. It takes practice. It takes time. When you have quiet time with Jesus, close your eyes and picture Jesus. And then watch what he does. That's not hard, is it? You see, that's how easy it can be to behold your king. It's just asking him a question. Just seeing yourself worship him. He shows up. You say, well, that's just my imagination. No, it's not. And that's the point. What we see in the mind's eye, what we see with the imagination of our heart, becomes a reality to our heart. And God will meet you right there. He says, take time. The most important thing you can do is behold your King. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you come to church. I thank you, Father God, that you love us with an everlasting love. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us an everlasting righteousness. Father, I thank you that you are so amazing. Thank you for your word that over and over and over again points us to the one true Savior of the world, the high priest who took his own blood into the most holy place and anointed it so that all sin for all time for all people could be declared forgiven. We thank you, Father God, for your everlasting kingdom, your everlasting Son, and our everlasting righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.